0: Right, uh, very good evening to you. Um, welcome to the LSE, those of you who are not from the LSE, and I'm glad you're here if you are from the LSE. Uh, I'm Tony Travers from LSE London, uh, and I'm here to uh, chair this evening's event and uh, simply to manage the logistics of the uh, sort of questions and answers after David Kinniston has spoken. Uh, we're here to enjoy a lecture by uh, David Kinniston, who's a leading historian and who has worked notably, though not exclusively, on uh, the City of London. It's hard to think of more astute timing for a book about the City of London, um, given what's been going on. Outside today, but more generally in the financial world recently. Um, In fact, David's been writing about the city since the 1970s and has published four uh, large volumes of uh, history about the city, uh, really covering the whole of its history, but particularly now. Bringing them into a single volume, which is the purpose of today's event, uh, covering a long scope, a long period of time, from including Big Bang and up to today's economic travails. Now, of course, the city of London is not only bankers. Uh, And exchanges and the other financial things that go on there, but there is the overlap with the notion of the city corporation. These two things are fused together, the ancient historical corporation, the city of London as a financial and business services centre fused completely in the use of this word uh, city. But now is a great opportunity to hold a debate, and who better to start that than David Kinniston, uh, who can talk about the history, the great a long history of the city, but also about what we can learn from that history uh, looking forward. So as I say, David's new book brings together uh, the story from his four earlier major works into a single book, and I'd like to welcome him now to talk about it. David. Thank
1: Thank you very much, Tony. Thank thank you for, for chairing this event. Thank you very much for coming this evening. I have seen the West End, the parks, the fine squares, but I love the city far better. The city seems so much more in earnest. Its business, its rush, its roar are such serious things, sights and sounds. The city is getting its living, the West End, but enjoying its pleasure. At the West End you may be amused, but in the city you are deeply excited." Well, that was Charlotte Bronte in Villette in the 1850s. And some 70 odd years later, perhaps the greatest poet of the 20th century was working in the city. He worked there for eight years at Lloyds Bank. And in the course of that time, Uh, he wrote these nine imperishable lines. Unreal city, under the brown fog of a winter dawn, a crowd flowed over London Bridge. So many I had not thought death had undone, so many. Sighs, short and infrequent, were exhaled. And each man fixed his eyes before his feet Flowed up the hill and down King William Street to where St. Mary Woolneth kept the hours with a dead sound on the final stroke of nine. Well, as I'm sure you'll know, those lines come from T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland, 1922. And those two quotations, the Bronte uh, and, and the Eliot, I found, I think, consistently in, in, inspiring. I mean, I think they're wonderful quotations in themselves. And, and, and speaking more personally, I have found them uh, inspiring. Um, uh, I started work on the history of a city here at the LSE in the late 1970s. I, I, I did a PhD here, uh, and so it's for, for myself a moment to be back here giving a lecture. Um, and I came very much not as an econ- certainly not as an economist, and not as an economic historian either. I'd read history, modern history at Oxford. And in those days, certainly the history course at Oxford was fantastically old-fashioned, high political, high diplomatic, high ecclesiastical, a little bit of economic history perhaps at the margins, certainly no social history. And I remember in my last year in 1973, at a revision class on the late 18th, early 19th century English history, I tried to smuggle in a bit of E. P. Thompson into the discussion, and I hadn't read Thompson's Making of English Working Class at that time, but I was aware, I was aware of it, and was absolutely slapped down by the by the by by, by, by the tutor. Um, so it, 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 it was really coming from the outside to 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 the city in the late 1970s, uh, just a kind of hunch that maybe it would be an interesting subject to commit to, but really to try to tell it as a human story and in a sense as an anthropological story uh, and I think quite early on I worked out that that old city and I'm here talking about the, when I say the old city I mean the city up to the 1980s up to Big Bang I think it changed immensely after that and we'll come to that later um, but that old city was in many ways like a village um, it, it was a very important village of course but it was a village and famously the governor of the Bank of England in the 1950s Said, uh, said, you know, if I want all the important people uh, in my room, I just ring, you know, pick up the phone and within half an hour, they're all in my room. And that's how it was in the old city. Um, and I, I, I felt that it could be done as a subject of, yes, of financial history, of course, and not to, to do the financial history would be like Hamlet without the prince, but that it could also be done, and perhaps predominantly be done, as a subject of social and cultural history with of course also a strong political uh, uh, element Uh, and that's what I tried to do and I got drawn into the primary sources at places like the Bank of England and Barings and Rothschilds and so on wonderful archives and the Guildhall Library Uh, uh, and all the accompanying contemporary literature including the great runs of periodicals here at the LSE Uh, like the Economist, like the now forgotten Statist Um, And in 1987, I foolishly signed a contract with the publishers to write a one-volume history of the city. Uh, And one became three, and three became four. And eventually, the final volume was published in 2001. And there'd always sort of been uh, uh, an understanding that, or as one became three, and three became four, that um, uh, it would be rather nice to actually do a version at some point that got back to the original concept of one volume. And the publishers were phenomenally patient. And recently, it did seem the moment had come to do it. And I'm very grateful to my editor, David Milner, who boiled down over a million words to a mere 300,000. Um, so, um, let me try and periodize the city just a little bit, in fairly bold terms. Um, uh, from 1815, 1815, because it was then, I think, that the modern, modern city really began as an international financial center. Uh, particularly exporting capital around the world, which it had largely not done before 1815. Uh, uh, up to the 1790s, the great international financial centre was Amsterdam, but Amsterdam was really knocked out uh, once the French occupied it in the 1790s, and people started to come to London, and from 1815, uh, uh, it, it, it was London that emerged. And really, that city, that city of London, between the long 19th century, between 1815 and 1914, Um, was, I think, the greatest international financial and commercial centre that the world, I think, has has ever seen, really. It became the absolutely indispensable place. It was a magnet for for, for talent from around the world. Um, Eric Hobsbawm once used the term for London in the 19th century how it became the world's switchboard, and I think that's rather a good good term for it. Um, And... If I was to mention two people who particularly made that city, that 19th-century city, they would be Nathan Rothschild, uh, who came to London in 1808 and ran Rothschilds until his death in 1836. And he was a great, a great operator, a ruthless man, a brilliant judge of markets, completely devoted to his work, um, fiercely unsentimental. And he was the founder in London, anyway, of the House of of Rothschild. Um, And then later in the 19th century, nudging into the early 20th, Ernest Castle, um, a cosmopolitan financier uh, who became Edward VII's financial advisor. What, of course, both men had in common, Rothschild and Castle, was that they were German Jews. Uh, And I think that infusion of talent from outside was absolutely crucial, uh, uh, the X factor, really, in London's soaring success in the 19th century. Well, of course, the guns of August in 1914 changed everything. New York had been coming up a bit before 1914, but was still really pretty well behind, I would say. But the war changed everything. It knocked London out as an international financial centre. New York replaced it. And although in the 1920s uh, there was a bit of a comeback by London, a bit of a comeback, uh, it didn't really get that far. And then, of course the 1930s, the slump, uh, economies generally becoming much more inward-looking and autarkic uh, tended to knock out international finance and commerce generally, uh, and uh, London, uh, the city rather reluctantly, but, but uh increasingly orientated itself more domestically and became more integrally involved in the UK economy than it ever had been before. By contrast, back in the 19th century, say the late 19th century, um, industrial securities, i.e. British industrial securities on the stock exchange, comprised only about 10%, 10% of the, of the whole of the stock exchange and then you'd have some government securities, some railway securities, uh, otherwise it was all foreign. Um, uh, that changed between the wars and to a large extent that continued after the war because of course the war itself, the Second World War, uh, not only was a huge economic blow to uh, to, to United Kingdom and, to, and and to the city but a huge physical blow, and much of the city was simply physically devastated at the end of the war. And I mean, there's some astonishing photographs, including one in one in the book, looking out from St Paul's eastwards, and it's just it's just you know effectively one huge bomb site, and that remained the case for a long time. But the book also includes a rather nice photograph we found um, from 1955 in the sort of Barbican area before the Barbican development was, was built. Uh, uh, and it's all, you know, bombsite and weeds and whatnot. Uh, and rather improbably, it shows Brigitte Bardot uh, standing there. And she was over perhaps making Doctor at Sea, perhaps, if I had to make a guess, making, make, making a film with Dirk Bogard. Um, uh, 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 and at the end of the war and well into the 1950s, no one would have imagined that the city was going to um, recover the, or go close to recovering uh, the ground to return to something like its pre 1914 position. But of course, that's more or less what did happen. The euro markets in the 1960s were a huge breakthrough in terms of re internationalizing the city. Uh, these were uh, offshore dollar denominated markets. Uh, uh, and in the case of the euro bond market, the cap- international capital market, this should have resided in New York but under the Kennedy administration 1963, the interest equalization tax drove that business away from New York and it came to Europe and specifically, uh, specifically London. Um, floating exchange rates from the early 70s, the end of the breakup of the old Bretton Woods system, uh, helped further in terms of re-internationalizing, as did the abolition of exchange controls in 1979. But of course, the really big thing, which we've just marked, marked if not necessarily celebrated, the 25th anniversary of was Big Bang, October 1986. Uh, And essentially, this was bringing the, as it were, domestic UK-oriented part of the city, the stock exchange, into line with the new new, new, new international part of the city, the euro markets. It opened up the stock exchange, it deregulated it, it broke down restrictive practices, Uh, and, above all, made it possible for foreign ownership of stockbroking and jobbing or um, uh, market-making firms and unleashed much else, which I'll come to briefly um, uh, later. Uh, And, essentially, in its own terms, I think Big Bang was a brilliant vision which worked. After all, think back to the 1990s. There was a lot of talk then, in the late 80s, there was a lot of talk then of Frankfurt perhaps coming up and challenging uh, uh, London as the leading um, uh, uh, European financial centre. But it, Frankfurt never got anywhere anywhere near, nor did Paris, nor anywhere else. Um, uh, and I would say, I mean estimates vary, but I would say by the new century London was ahead of everywhere, certainly Tokyo and probably New York and in terms of purely international financial centre. So in its own terms, I think Big Bang um, uh, 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 worked very well of course it came with side effects and we'll come to, um, we'll c- come to those later but those anyway just to periodise the whole thing the whole sweep 1815 onwards are, 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 are the three major periods of a city's history uh, international up to 1914 uh, out of necessity becoming more domestic then returning to the international from the 1960s and particularly the 1980s Now, in terms of the main institutional players, in in my city history, I really had to take a view of what was the city, what comprised the city. Uh, And the methodological choice I faced was, did I try and write about the city across the whole waterfront, as it were, or did I focus a bit more narrowly? And I took the latter view um, that if I um, went... Uh, sort of equal treatment across the waterfront it was the whole thing was just going to become get out of out of out of control and become impossible and i wanted to really concentrate on the financial core of the city Um, and that meant in practice four main institutional players the bank of england the merchant banks the clearing banks uh, uh and the stock exchange and i'd just like to say a few words uh sort of overview, sweep kind of words, words, uh, about each of those players, starting with the Bank of England, Um, founded in 1694, but of course took an awful long time to become anything like a modern central bank. Uh, Essentially, during the 18th century, it was run by merchants as a profit-making enterprise, although from the 1760s, it was starting to move to becoming the lender of last resort, during the 19th century, it still remained in many ways a, a, a private enterprise. The merchants ran it. They became governor, you know, you became governor by rotation every two years. There was no idea of sort of long term govern, governors then. No great sort of executive staff uh, managing it. No close continuous watch. On the city, not at all involved in international, I mean, international economy, international finance, nothing like sort of going to bar or anything like that for meetings of central bankers, no conception of that at all in the 19th century. Um, uh, the economist David Ricardo slightly, slightly called it the company of merchants. Um, although, when there were crises, as there often were in the 19th century, I mean, pretty much every 10 years there was a major, major crisis, then the Bank of England was closely involved, perhaps most famously. In 1890, with the bearings crisis, or as we now call it, the first bearings crisis, when the then governor William Lidderdale was a key figure in ensuring the survival uh, of, 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 of bearings. All changed between the wars. Um, You had the financial reconstruction of of Europe, um, which the bank was heavily involved in, industrial reorganization in in, in the United Kingdom, with the old staple industries like uh, steel and cotton and so on, which were struggling. Um, The bank being involved in industrial reorganization, a much closer and more continuous watch over the city. 1946, the bank was nationalized by the Labour government. uh, and um, in some ways, well, kept kept punching its weight for some time, but one sensed by the 80s rather less so, with all the changes going on uh, in the in, in the city um, in various ways. Uh, then, in 1997, this fateful moment when the bank simultaneously acquired monetary independence with the establishment of the Monetary Policy Committee, but simultaneously, much to Eddie George, uh, then-governor Chagrin, lost control over supervision. But, of course, now supervision is coming back to the Bank of England. Uh, It retains uh, monetary uh, monetary policy control. So it would seem to me that in in the next year or two, when the new supervisory system shakes down, that it is arguable that the Bank of England, in, say, 2013, will be more powerful than at any time in its history, which is quite a thought. And there was an interesting piece in today's Guardian by Alistair Darling raising the whole question of accountability um, uh, following that recent report earlier the, the other day by the Treasury, uh, the Treasury Committee. Um, so there are kind of interesting things going on in terms of the bank's, uh, the bank's history. I should just say before I move on, one key figure. I've mentioned um, Nathan Rothschild, Ernest Castle, Uh, And I should have mentioned, sorry, for the the post-war city, and particularly the euro markets, Sigmund Warburg, uh, who created Warburg's The Merchant Bank. And uh, he was intimately involved in the euro Euro bond market coming to London. Uh, Sigmund Warburg, another German Jew. So we've got three German Jews who really came here and added value in Rothschild Castle and, and Warburg. But the fourth person, and I would say these four people are the four most significant figures taking the city as a whole for the 19th and 20th centuries. The fourth figure was not a German Jew. In fact, he was pretty anti-Semitic. And this is Montagu Norman, who was governor of the Bank of England between 1920 and 1944. And it was he who really turned it into a recognisably modern uh, central bank. He was very far himself from being the technocratic rather grey central banker. He had relatively little economic knowledge. Uh, he, He relied instead on intuition, and charm and, uh, and, and what was called uh, moral suasion of a governor 's eyebrows, so if his eyebrows were raised, then people would jump into line and to read his diaries is fascinating and Every day people from the city would come on or come in to see him or he 'd summon them in to see him and if he didn 't like the look of their business or whatever he 'd let them know, and they would more or less uh, uh, more or less keep in line and, and For many years, the Bank of England was recognizably. Recognizably, Norman's Bank. Let me move on to the merchant banks. Traditionally, the creme de la creme of the old city. Um, Rothschilds, we've mentioned, I've mentioned. uh, Baring's mentioned. Baring's essentially English. uh, Always said, if there was a cricket team of the old merchant banks, um, faithful, loyal Baring's would bowl uphill into the wind. Um, It was also said, and this is part of the old anti-Semitic city, that Singer and Friedlander. Um, would keep Wicked because they never miss anything. Um, Morgan more Grenfell and other of the merchant banks came from the States, Schroeder's from Germany, Lazard's from, from a mixture of France and the States, Hambros from Scandinavia, uh, Kleinwort's from, 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 from Germany. You, you see the pattern. Um, these old merchant banks did two, two, two main things. Uh, trade finance which was techni- which essentially guaranteeing, uh, uh, guaranteeing the trade, uh, uh, the financial aspect of trade, trade all around the world, often not involving uh, the UK. Um, uh, but, uh, and that was te- the technical term was accepting. And the merchant banks from 1914, the institutional organization collective organisation was the Accepting Houses Committee. So it was trade finance or accepting was one of their two main activities, and the other was the whole area of new issue finance, corporate finance, um, merge, MA mergers and acquisitions, and they would act for, for governments, uh, uh, often in terms of loans, for example, state loans, uh, or, 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 or for companies. Uh, as I say, they were the creme de la creme. If you were to read Paul Ferris's rather brilliant journalistic study of the city, published in about 1960, he interviews some of the merchant bankers of the day, and their sense of um, self-satisfaction is considerable. They saw themselves as the creme de la creme. They were regarded as the creme de la creme. They were the great names of the city. And yet, and yet, when the city changed so fundamentally in the 1980s and into the 1990s, these old merchant banks were effectively blown out of the water. Uh, As the city became Americanized, as the American investment banks came here, um, uh, uh, came here or greatly enlarged their presence here, uh, they, as I say, blew the merchant banks out of the water. Rothschild survives. Baring's, of course, succumbed with Nick Leeson in 1995, um, were bought by the uh, Dutch bank ING. Morgan Grenfell bought by Deutsche. Schroeder's bought by Citi. Uh, Lazard survives, uh, Hambrose, not really uh, Kleinwort bought by Dresden Bank and so on. Most of the great names have gone. Um, and yes, they were undercapitalized, certainly in relation to the American investment <coughs> banks, but I think also they simply were not as good as they thought they were. And I think they were they had been a protected species with the Exception Houses Committee. That gave them special privileges. The Bank of England gave them special privileges um, and in the end it was a, you know, what happened was Darwinian it was survival of the fittest And they turned out, sadly in some ways, not to be the fittest. Let me move on to the clearing banks, Um, uh, the high street banks, the big retail banks. Uh, They tended to come from the provinces in the 19th century, Midland from Birmingham, Lloyds from Birmingham, uh, National Provincial from from Manchester, I think, uh, Barclays, well, from all around, but particularly East Anglia. They bought up other banks, including private banks, other joint stock banks, and became huge. by 1918 they were the big five from the late 1960s they were the big four and essentially the same big four uh, we, we, we have now, I mean Barclays as is Lloyds essentially as is Midland bought by HSBC in the early 90s uh, NatWest Nat West, as it were as is but obviously bought by Royal Bank of Scotland some 10 or 11 years ago um, they were regarded historically by the city establishment as upstarts um, Uh, there was a great dislike of their huge financial resources because of course they had all that depositors' money Uh, but eventually they became part of the establishment themselves and what these clearing banks gave to the city and indeed the British financial system was above all stability and in 1931 when most of Europe was in an appalling financial crisis and dreadfully unstable uh, the British financial system came through pretty well Um, Oliver Franks, a Whitehall Mandarin who was chairman of Lloyds Bank in the 1950s uh, he once observed how frustrating it was that he was in charge of a it was like being in char- driving a car he said that could go at 80 miles an hour but it was only allowed to go at 20 miles an hour because of all sorts of restrictions on lending and, 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 and so on um, well restrictions on the clearing banks ended or began to end from the early 1970s the Heath government uh, competition and credit control wasn't it um, uh, and um, what have we had well we've had instability since um, and um, I found it hard not to think um, when everything went wrong in 2008 with RBS with HBOS um, I find it hard not to think well in the old days they may, may have been you know, pretty boring, pretty unaventurous indeed a cartel in many ways for half a century after 1918 the old clearing bank system but at least it was stable. And I think I would argue that, um, yes, one wants a bit of dynamism in one's financial system, but one sure wants stability as well. And I think the baby was thrown out with the bathwater. And the history of how all that happened, including, I think, that in many ways insane pursuit of, of shareholder value uh, by, the big, by the big banks, um, I, I mean, I can see the logic for it but it meant that uh, everything was down to kind of uh, 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 share price um, and to um, squeezing the last bit of commercial value out of everything uh, and taking risks and taking chances. And there was that ludicrous situation just before everything went wrong when there was the bidding battle between Barclays and um, RBS for the uh, Dutch bank AMRO, ABN AMRO, uh, which RBS were unlucky enough to win, uh, and that you know, within a year or two they were down the plug hole. Uh, and they should never have been doing that kind of thing, never doing that kind of thing. And I think one day a, a very fascinating and disturbing history will be written of that whole process of how those uh, boring but stable institutions became so unstable. Um, Briefly, the Stock Exchange. The Stock Exchange was, as it were, my first city love. I wrote my PhD on it, the late 19th, early 20th century Stock Exchange. I was drawn to it, I think, because it seemed to me the daily pulse of the city, Uh, the market. That was where, every day, the temper of the city was was determined. Um, They tended, members of the Stock Exchange, particularly jobbers or, or market makers, tended to be looked down on by the city establishment. It wasn't until 1891 that the first old Etonian jobber emerged um, uh, the old floor of the stock exchange a tumultuous place of face-to-face dealings and often very raw human drama uh, and I think that drama of the stock exchange floor is a strong narrative thread um, through, the city, through the city's history and through my own account of it and um, just, a couple of, just a couple of quotes to give a bit of flavour Uh, The first comes from a memoir, late 19th century, uh, a man called Francis Carovas Gould, who was uh, a broker on the stock exchange before he became a... and then he left in middle age by his own volition and became a political cartoonist. And and this is what he wrote in his memoirs, um, uh, looking back on his life on the stock exchange. "'I cannot say that it was ever a congenial occupation "'that suited my temperament. "'It was like living on a tropical volcanic island.' When the sun shone and things went smoothly, it was pleasant enough, but there were too many sudden and unforeseen bolts from the blue. It was a life of alternations. Some men made fortunes swiftly, some plodded on cautiously, content merely to make a living, whilst others fell by the way. Some were fortunate or skillful enough to weather all the storms and even to profit by them, but there were others whose tragic fate it was to work all their lives, only to fail at the end. To fail at the end, there was this ceremony in the old stock exchange that um, if a firm was failing or a member was failing, the waiters or the attendants on the stock exchange would, uh, a waiter would go up on the rostrum with a hammer and he'd bring the hammer down three times and he would announce Mr. So-and-so or Mrs so So-and-so uh, are unable to comply with their obligations. And that meant that a member or a firm had failed, or, as this was known in the vernacular, they'd been hammered. And it was a very great fear. And in 1911, a man called John Braithwaite, who later, he was young at this point, half a century later, 40 years later, he became chairman of the stock exchange, but as a, as a young man, his firm, stockbroking firm, Foster and Braithwaite, had got unwisely involved in the promotion of oil companies, uh, and he wrote, this, um, he wrote this wrenching letter In the summer of 1911, uh, to his father. Uh, This is just a couple of lines for it. You may perhaps be surprised that I have spoken of the possibility of failure. It is because it has been before my mind like a nightmare, day and night, more or less continuously, for the last month and more. I have suffered it all mentally over and over again. When the hammer has gone in the house, it has sounded like a, the house been the nickname for the floor of the stock exchange, uh, or for the stock exchange generally, it has sounded like a knell in my ears. I have thought of the long list of our names and the awful, staggering hush afterwards. Well, Let me turn now to the culture of the city, which is really the heart of my kind of study, I think. And I'd just like to make just a few general kind of observations, a few general characteristics of the traditional culture of the city, that city that lasted broadly speaking up to the 1980s. uh, uh, And these are fairly kind of scattergun observations. I think it was an insular place, uh, a dislike, as I've touched on before of foreigners and jews and of outsiders generally even if they did sometimes reluctantly let outsiders into the club but they often did it against the you know they, they, they did it reluctantly uh, a cl- as i say a clubby kind of place full of restrictive practices um in many ways the old city was like a cluster of medieval guilds each with its own sort of demarcation lines uh, around it it was a deeply unmeritocratic place Who you knew mattered far more than what you knew, or as the phrase went, the face had to fit. It was a muscular kind of place. They admired sportsmen. If you were a leading sportsman, that that gave you your name uh, and recommendation and so on. Um, The floor of the old stock exchange was a place full of japes and practical jokes. In the 19th century, there were things called butter slides, which were popular, and you can imagine them an unimaginative on the whole place, non-intellectual, um, one story, uh, Crimean War, re- lead up to the Crimean War in the 1850s. Um, it is said that a member rushed onto the floor of a stock exchange and said, um, I hear the Russians have taken umbrage, at which point someone else rushed away, saying the Russians have taken umbrage. Uh, the umbrage has fallen, and um, all prices marked down. Um, more, more, more seriously, more seriously, um, when I started my research in 1979 here, I read a wonderful article by an economic historian called Sidney Checkland. It was published in Oxford Economic Papers, 1957, and it was called The Mind of the City, The Mind of the City, 1870 to 1914. And he argued um, that the city had no mind, had no collective mind, that effectively it was a whole series of, as it were, discrete uh, operations. Um, cogs if you like in the wheel or in the machine but no, very few people or even no one having a kind of grasp of the big picture uh, and I found that an absolutely fascinating analysis written as I say back in 1957 uh, uh, but as I then over the years did my research it seemed to me essentially essentially right in terms of, which is not to say this issue do not have collective prejudices but, not, but that's a bit different from having a collective mind um, it tended to be short termist uh, Keynes would often vent his exasperation with the city's short-termism and on the stock exchange there was an expression, a favourite expression that won't happen in this account and the account was the fortnightly settlement system uh, and so if something wasn't going to happen in this account, well that's okay, it's going to happen at some distant point beyond this fortnight tribally right wing uh, I, I would want to emphasise uh, as you can imagine the Attlee government the Labour government after the Second World War was, 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 was pretty unpopular um, uh, I remember reading once an a, a oral, oral history interview uh, of someone who went for a young man after the war, 1947 or something, went for an interview at a jobbers firm and made the mistake of wearing a red tie. Um, uh, in a stockbroking firm, Panmure Gordon, the firm where our present Prime Minister's um, uh, father and grandfather and so on worked, um, there was a partner, not I think Cameron, but a partner uh, uh, who used to, refer to the, uh, uh, used to refer to the Prime Minister Clement Attlee as A.T. Lee, because he was convinced that he had a Chinese face. Um, It was tribally patriotic, which is not to make a value judgment of mine about patriotism, but it's to make the point that it was tribal and it was, on the whole, unconsidered and instinctive. And even if, and I think this is a key point, even if it was against the city's own interests, as above all it was in 1914, I mean, going to war in 1914, and I'm not saying whether it was the right or wrong thing to do, but it was the most disastrous thing, as I say, that ever happened to the city. And yet the city absolutely fell into line uh, with huge enthusiasm uh, uh, when the First World War began. In short, there was a code in the old city. Um, And it was a code perhaps best summarised Uh, By the phrase, um, uh, a slightly mysterious phrase, and yet imbued at some deep level with meaning, the phrase "playing the game," playing the game, and just briefly, the reminiscences of a stockbroker called Murray Griffiths, and he—actually, sorry—he was a jobber, not a stockbroker, and he recalled, in the 1920s, towards the end of his career, um, going into the stock exchange as a young man in the 1880s, and he said. uh, he says, "At once I realised that I had fallen amongst a lot of men who were always kind and helpful. Um, uh, uh, this kind of schoolboy comradeship in the hard battle for success established in my mind the fact that the stock exchange was full of human beings. The only standard to live up to being that you play the game." And then later he says, um, uh, "He says I've always considered that the stock exchange is the real and true example of a socialistic institution." inasmuch that it gives everyone a chance of getting on you do not require bankers reference etc all you have to do is to play the game and even if a man is unfortunate and comes to an end financially it is not a question of how he came to grief, but did he play the game well move, moving on uh, I, I'd like to pretty much to finish with three uh, brief consideration of three key relationships between the city and the outside world sorry, I don't want to do that, I want to just say something more about the culture, which is to say, yes, that's my depiction of the old traditional culture, Um, but I would want to emphasise at the same time that, okay, I've made the negative points, that it had some huge strengths, the old traditional culture, above all, loyalty, loyalty to firms, and trust between participants in the market. Um, uh, Face-to-face dealing, people... uh, people, um, Knew each other well. There were close personal ties. If you dealt with someone on the Friday, you had to look in their eyes on the following Monday. You weren't going to abuse that trust. Uh, The Stock Exchange motto was, my word is my bond. Uh, And it really did mean something. It really did mean something. And it was interesting, uh, the report earlier this week on the St. Paul's Paul survey of the 500 interviews that were done in September about city attitudes and so on, eight out of 10, 500 city professionals interviewed, 8 out of 10 did not know that the stock exchange motto is my word, is my uh, bond. 8 out of 10 did not know. In the old city, 10 out of 10 would have known. We've moved a long way. Um, when uh, a man called Henry Grunfeld, who was Warburg's right-hand man, came to the city in the 1930s, Uh, he he told me half a century later, he told me, but what had really struck him in the city was, was, yes, there was that degree of arrogance and unimaginative conservatism about new things, new ways of doing business and so on, uh, which he disliked, but he hugely admired, on the other hand, this this trust and efficiency of business and execution of business. Uh, And uh, I think we've, to a degree, lost that. We've certainly lost the trust. And when the um, interbank market that the lending market and borrowing market between the banks dried up so disastrously in 2008. There was simply no trust. There was no cohesion. Um, so I would want to emphasize with that traditional culture for all the rather negative things I've said, which I think are true, that uh, there were very positive aspects um, also. Sorry, moving on then to the city and the outside world. Three key relationships with the government of the day and politicians generally, with industry and with society at large. Uh, Briefly, government and politicians. I think we're now very much in a mindset. We are very used to the idea that the markets are all dominant and the politicians are all weak. Um, And it's hardly surprising that that in in, in recent years we've been in that mindset. And I guess Black Wednesday in 1992 was the thing that really put uh, the seal on it. Uh, And... um, Uh, At lunchtime news today on the radio, I heard a a snippet from Cameron in Prime Minister's Question Times where he was basically using PMQ to um, address the Italians and the Greeks, and he basically said, look, if you don't go for, you know, if you don't do what we're doing, debt reduction, etc., the markets, they're not going to lend you the money. Uh, the, mar- the markets all, 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 all dominant and much of the history of a city that I've written particularly in the 20th century does see politicians at the mercy of the markets and of the city particularly of course labour politicians reading uh, uh, the, the 1931 financial crisis uh, Ramsay MacDonald's labour government severely constrained by the markets uh, With their precisely with their uh, austerity package and so on, uh, demanding it, and that split the Labour split the Labour government, split the Labour Party, led to the National uh, Government, or more recently the Wilson government that came in in '64 uh, found itself very constrained by the markets right from the start, or the 1976 market-determined IMF crisis with the Callaghan government. But Tory 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 politicians too think of Churchill and the return to the gold standard in 1925 when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer and he was deeply deeply reluctant to return to the gold standard and he famously said just before he made the decision to do so he he said with a sort of reluctance I would rather see finance less proud and industry more content but he saw no alternative the city uh, demanded that return to the gold standard and he went along with it and of course it proved disastrous Um, uh, so all that's true, but I would just like to offer this thought, that there have been times in the last 200 years when strong-minded politicians have actually determined the agenda, the city's agenda, and imposed their will upon the city. Uh, in the 19th century, there were three things that really lay behind the rise of the city, uh, in addition to anything I, other things I've mentioned. Uh, one was the return to the gold standard after the uh, French wars of finished in 1815. Uh, The second was the establishment of free trade, 1820s through to the 1840s, and the third was the Bank Charter Act of 1844, regulating the Bank of England. And all three things, uh, gold standard, return to gold, free trade, Bank Charter Act, all three things were at the time opposed by majority city opinion. Uh, but were imposed on the city by politicians. And, of course, they worked fantastically well, and within 20 or 30 years, the city thought it was a way you know, we'd had the idea first, but it wasn't true the politicians that politicians actually imposed on them. And more recently, abolition of exchange controls in 1979 uh, hugely boosted the city's business above all its international business, and yet it's clear that it was essentially Thatcher and Howe as Chancellor who imposed abolition upon a conservative lowercase C as well as upper... Uh, a, a reluctant city and ditto with Big Bang it, Big Bang was not the city's vision there were two or three people in the city uh, Eddie George perhaps at the Bank of England David Walker at the Bank of England Nicholas Goodison at the Stock Exchange who had the kind of vision uh, but very few others did uh, and essentially it was the politicians Thatcher herself, Lawson as Chancellor Cecil Parkinson who imposed it on a reluctant city um, so I would just offer that historical perspective now um, to, as it were, politicians, uh, that actually, actually, with real uh, willpower, uh, you know, you don't have to be quite so defeatist uh, in relation to the city as you perhaps think you have to be. Uh, I, I would want to offer that thought on the basis of the city's history. Um, city and industry, let me be very brief and say this. Uh, I do not think that the city was the prime culprit for British economic decline. Uh, And industrial decline. I think questions of government policy, of poor management, of lousy industrial relations uh, and many other things were at least as important, if not more so. That said, I think that on the whole, the city provided and has provided a patchy service to industry. Uh, I think it hasn't got as close to management over the years as it should have done. It's very different from the Uh, Rhineland model, the German model, where you see a much uh, closer relationship between finance and and industry. It's tended, of course, as I say, to have a short-termist approach. It's tended to um, uh, concentrate, more than it should, on profitable financial engineering, rather than a more uh, 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 long-term constructive approach. And Often, because of its international orientation, has not given the British industry and the British economy uh, as high a priority as arguably it should have done or anyway could have done. Um, and now, of course, with the city itself so largely internationally owned as well as its business being so international, that would seem to me to be true, um, true in spades. Um, finally, of these three relationships, the city and society, my impression is, and it can only be an impression, is that over the years the mainstream of of British society have rather taken the city for granted. It is just as part of the furniture, but a rather sort of obscure part of the furniture. It has seen the city as incomprehensible and as boring. Um, Certainly incomprehensible. And as for boring, uh, well, Monty Python, back in the 60s, early 70s, had that sketch for dull life of a city stockbroker. And I think that was probably, on the whole, how people saw it. And I was at Invest in the early 70s, and it was on the whole, no, not on the whole, completely, not my impression, that the sort of, the, 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 br- the brightest people were thinking of going into the city. On the whole, it was a place where you probably only went if you had family, uh, family ties. That, of course, has, 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 has completely changed. Um, Uh, the image of the dark satanic mills meant that I think industry was always far more and the the industrial revolution and manufacturing was always far more in the popular imagination than the city and finance ever was as far as economists were concerned I mean the long Keynesian period in the middle decades of the the 20th century meant there was an emphasis on macroeconomic policy on on fiscal policy rather than on monetary policy or or, or on markets the left tended to focus more on multinationals than on um, the city. Um, uh, and of course, in terms of remuneration, uh, the old city, yes, many people were well paid and did pretty well for themselves. Uh, but they didn't on the whole, on the whole, do spectacularly well for themselves. Um, there was not such a huge disparity. So if you were, say, I don't you know a provincial solicitor, for the sake of argument, uh, or, or an army officer, or whatever it might be—a sort of solid professional, middle-class person. Um, yes, you are probably earning less than most city people uh, or many city people, but not so much less. And it's only from the 80s that it's gone completely out of kilter uh, with the rest of uh, with, with, with the rest of society, and also that sense of. Um, uh, sucking in so much of the so much of the talent, uh, which used to be more distributed, more 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 widely uh, across society and across the economy, uh, and obviously now um, uh, since 2008, since the crash of 2008, there is considerable um, popular discontent um, with the city. It's seen by many, I think, as this rather um, remote offshore island and there's a sort of disconnect. They see see a disconnect between it and the rest of of society. Um, There's also the huge problem of um, the bonus culture, uh, the American investment banking culture, and the way in which traders have effectively um, been able to engage in one-way bets, um, often in opaque and murky and unintelligible financial instruments. One-way bets, because they don't take the liability themselves, the risk themselves. The risk is born, it's a double one-way bet, because the risk is borne in the first instance by the institution, not by the trader himself. And secondly, if that institution comes unstuck, too big to fail, means it's borne by the taxpayer. It is so utterly different from the old system in the city of the partnership structure. In which each partner was financially responsible for the rest, for all the other partners. So if one partner did something really stupid uh, and took a, took a ridiculous risk that came unstuck, the rest of the partnership was clobbered. And that meant you only let people into the partnership whom you could, and I come back to the word trust. Uh, it's such a different situation now. In my view, uh, moving to the end now, in my view, There is a need for a reform agenda in the city, and I think it should concentrate on three main areas, in addition to the recommendations recently of the Vickers' report on the ring fencing between the investment banking and retail banking activities, which strikes me as a sensible recommendation. Um, I think the three areas of a reform agenda should be, one, to do with the activities of the city. Are those activities actually beneficial to the wider economy, Uh, or or, 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 or not Um, uh, 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 that's the first area Uh, the second area is remuneration I think the disparity has become so grotesque um, that it is unsustainable in terms of a cohesive uh, society Uh, and that something has to be done. And thirdly, to do with accountability, I do think the city needs to become more accountable. It was so striking during the 2008 crisis, uh, uh, the uh, invisibility of the bankers. I remember one Sunday morning, a few weeks into the crisis, a few weeks after Lehman had failed and, all, and, and the H. boss and so on, on his television programme on Sunday morning, Andrew Marr remarking, um, you know, well, as usual, we're talking about the banking crisis, and as usual, the one people who are absent, we cannot get to appear in front of the screens, are the bankers. Uh, Paxman said much the same on Newsnight in September uh, when the Vickers report, uh, the, fin- the final version of the Vickers, Vickers report, and, uh, on his discussion that night, there were no bankers. And it's... Interesting, isn't it, to see possibly the plates are shifting uh, with um, uh, Diamond, Bob Diamond of, 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 of Barclays, uh, submitting himself for 20 minutes the other day on the Today programme to John, to John Humphreys. Um, can the city reform itself? Is it capable of taking on this reform agenda? I think, in its own interests, it should. Uh, I kind of think with the city we're at a point. Uh, well, the obvious analogy, and I think it's a good analogy, is with the trade unions in the 1970s, 1960s, and 70s. They had become an over, the trade unions had become an overmighty vested interest, overmighty subject. Um, uh, uh, and looking back on it now, I think they themselves would agree that if they had reformed themselves or been more amenable to reform, for example, when Barbara Castle made her in place of strife in the late 60s proposals, uh, it would have been, from their point of view, a happier outcome. Um, if the city doesn't reform itself, will politicians at some point muster the uh, willpower to do so? Um, difficult when the dominant party of the day, over half its funds, come from the city. Um, on the other hand, uh, if there comes a point where popular sentiment demands it, uh, I, further down the road, I guess it will happen. Maybe it will need a further crisis. Uh, I think we're probably going back to that union analogy we might be somewhere around the early 1970s and it may take one more push Um, but I think for the city's own sake and for our own sake at some point a reform agenda will need to be implemented thank you
0: Right, um, now we have an opportunity for a few questions, perhaps quarter of an hour, 20 minutes. Um, who would like to uh, kick off? Right, there are microphone, microphones, one on the front here. Can you say who you are broadly, if you will?
2: My name is David Kinsella, and first of oh, all, yeah. <laughs> I would like to thank you very much for your four-volume account of the city which I think will never, ever be beaten. I mean, it's a magnificent piece of work, and I can speak with some authority here, because thanks to Dad... Oh, sorry,
0: it's not your fault, the microphone. Can you hold it a bit I'll closer? Hold no, hold it, kind of point it at yourself a bit more, I think.
2: What's that like? Better. Good. But even um,
0: nearer to your mouth, if you can stand it. Nice okay.
2: Um, yes, again, your four-volume work is magnificent, and I can speak with some knowledge here, because thanks to Dad... I started going to the city with him when I was about 14. And all the firms you mentioned, and many more, I saw from the inside. To give one example, um, Sir Evelyn de Rothschild took me and showed me the inside of Rothschild's bank, not far from uh, the Bank of England, which was at one time one of their London houses. And it was decorated with furniture and uh, pictures and so on. The great thing about the old city was the fact that it was filled really with old money people, many titled people, many big landowners, um, huge lunches, of, say, three or four hours. Um, it was a city of great practical jokes, incredible practical jokes. In fact, one went far too far, and one of the persons who was involved is still in prison over it. But anyway, what I coming to my question. Oh. Good. What Thanks. do you think? What do you think is going to? I mean, I know we're in a, a very sort of confused state at the moment. But what do you think is going to happen to the city? What do you think should happen? Well, I
1: think it needs. I think the city. Sorry, stand here, shouldn't I? I think the city does need uh, does need reform. Um, and I guess one would argue that in the old days, one would look to the governor of the Bank of England, uh, and certainly the present governor, Mervyn King, has made very reform-minded noises. I, I don't think and, 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 and one of the main other people at the bank, Andy Haldane has made very interesting speeches of essentially a reformist nature um, uh, and maybe a bit further down the road when the Bank of England supervisory powers return to the Bank of England uh, that will there will be some extra heft there as it were. Uh, otherwise it's, it's it's, it's, it 's it's hard to see, I, I think it will at some point it will be because the logic just seems to me irresistible, that the, kind, the thing has kind of got out of control and if we 're going to take ourselves seriously in this country as a democracy uh, you can 't cannot have overmighty subjects you don 't have a democracy, you have overmighty subjects and uh, the city for all there are plenty of positive things one can say about the city, but it has become an overmighty subject and um, at some point it will have to be reined in so I think in that sense it will, you know, at some point the unthinkable becomes the thinkable and it's a bit like the Berlin Wall you know, kind of you know, the fall of communism <laughs> people simultaneously thought it could it never happen and yet logic says at some point it must happen and if logic says at some point it must happen perhaps in the end yes it, then it does happen but I'm only guessing obviously
0: I mean is international'll take that one in. is international competition a barrier though i mean the the sense that yes. if the city does something it, you mentioned the impact in the sixties of kennedy 's restrictions right. i mean right. that if if yeah. one center't goes alone, it thinks it will lose out compared with all the others
1: yeah i mean i think there's there's, there, there, there's a lot in it it's it 's very difficult and action ought to be taken you know multinationally but then it 's like taxation you 're always looking for. ...individual states advantage. looking for competitive advantage. So, so it, is, it is very difficult. Um, uh, no, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a real um, problem, and there's a trade-off involved. I, I, I can't deny that.
0: Okay, sorry. The question right at the back there, and I think I saw a hand here somewhere, didn't I? Anyway, right at the back. I'm, I'm interested in... Uh, like To me, 100 years ago, I imagine the role of the city was very much a UK role. Now the role of the city seems like it's very much a global role... Mm. Um, yet regulation—yet w- w- what you're talking about is UK regulation. Um, can you comment on the relationship there and the impact of, to the city? Well, it was the, the, the as the city has become. Just check—I've got that right—the a more global role, yes. and yet uh, regulation remains mm. national.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I mean, it's all there's always this problem with regulation over international. Institutions. And for example, a huge debacle 20 odd years ago was BCCI, wasn't it? Yeah. Which was had you know, fantastically widespread tentacles, but it was, if it had a base, it was mm-hmm. London. Uh, you know, institutions have to be regulated from somewhere, unless one has genuinely transnational <laughs> regulation. But I mean, that's, you know, it may happen one day, but it was certainly a very long way from it. Uh, but it becomes—I take your implication—it becomes extra challenging for regulators when institutions are doing business on such a global scale and have such global, you know, such gl- global tentacles, as it were. Uh, it's a real, it's a real problem. And I think technology hasn't helped regulation either. I mean, much easier to regulate the old world of face-to-face dealings and so on. Fantastic, difficult. It would seem to me to regulate the new, you know, the, the, the new screen-based world much harder.
0: And I think we got it, evidence, as we speak, of international um, of the the difficulty of the international community working together, even in extremists. So, yes, in a sense, quite. what you're talking about is working together when it's not in an extremists, yes. and they can't even do when it's extremists. Well, anyway. quite there and then here.
1: Uh, do, you, do you
3: agree with that? That the city was. Less international 100 years ago, because I think
1: people like Niall Ferguson would actually. Uh, Oh, I think 100 years ago. Would actually say uh, it was more international. Precisely. Precisely, 100 years ago. I mean, obviously, it's 1911, so it was just before the First World War. No, no. I think from the 60s on, we've been getting back to how we were before 1914. No, I think that was, you know, that was, certainly from a London perspective, city of London perspective, that was the era of internationalism. Uh, because there was such, you know, there was free movement of everything, free movement of cap- capital, people, trade around the world. And we've kind of got back to a degree to that in the era of globalization. But actually, pre-1914 was a true era of, 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 of globalization.
0: Okay, it's a question. That's right. Yeah.
1: Yes, uh,
3: hello. Um, my question is about the reasons for... The apparent decline in corporate governance, and particularly Mm. one of your last examples about um, Barclays and RBS. Um, One of the case studies I teach about handling information and making uh, decisions is based on a mid 20th century case of where a large German organization was seeking to expand into Eastern Europe and Mm. indeed mount a hostile takeover of its. Um, biggest rival in Eastern Europe, and yet, despite the dictatorial attitude of the chief executive, somebody was prepared to stand up and say to him, look, I don't think this is a good idea, we're biting off more than we can chew, which got the famous rejoinder, we only have to knock in the door and the whole rotten structure will Mm -hmm. come tumbling down, which didn't quite happen. Mm -hmm. And the point is that nothing... Hitler didn't do anything to no, that man. He no. suffered no consequences. Yeah. Why yeah. do you think it was that Royal Bank of Scotland went ahead and Barclays did not? Was it purely technical capability or was it an ethical Barclays issue? Barclays
1: wanted it, but they ultimately got outbid, as I understand it, by R- RBS. I mean, that was the script. I mean, when Humphreys was interviewing Diamond the other morning on today, I did rather want him to ask because he was going on about how wonderful Barclays were, but I did rather want him to ask some priest to ask the question, well, what about this incredible stroke of luck when you actually didn't get what you wanted, and you were very lucky not to, not, not to get it? Uh, it it's difficult I don't think the, 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 the there's i mean well, various things I mean that old city culture, which to, to, to some I guess persisted, was very much a not, not rocking the boat culture, wasn't it. You you know, it was a club-like culture, not easy to rock boats. But I think, in a way, what then happened from the 80s, and this is not just to do with the city, but more generally, was the sort of rise of sort of macho management and the star leader, and that then becomes extraordinarily difficult, it seems. And and the star leader tends to have kind of loyal apparatchiks around him. Uh, and it becomes, and there's a kind of almost a cult kind of thing going on sometimes, I think. And it becomes very, very difficult. Uh, and um, um, I think someone who's written particularly interesting about recent events and has been close to them has been Gillian Tett in the Financial Times. And she wrote uh, the book *Fool's Gold*, which was about the whole kind of credit derivatives thing, and uh, to, uh, particularly. Uh, and how disastrous and destabilizing these, instru- these, these trading these instruments supposed to minimize risk but in fact hugely increased it were. But then more interest- equally interest- perhaps more interesting in a way, she wrote a piece uh, for the Banque de France's journal last year in which she looked at the whole thing more anthropologically and she talked about these different sort of self-contained silos, really. And so within these large institutions, you often seem to... uh, They're strangely sort of divorced from other institutions. In the old city, you had all these face-to-face contacts on the train floor, and chance encounters in the street and the whole village thing. Now it's sort of more dispersed, depersonalised with the screen, huge self-contained institutions, ecosystems in their own right. Uh, I don't think they're, my, feel, my gut feeling is they're not conducive environments for people actually to be able to speak and this is probably true about the modern corporation to be able to speak, speak, speak frankly and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem and I mean clearly with RBS they had a macho leader who got it badly, badly wrong but people were, people must have seen it but they were frightened
3: I can assure you, from personal experience, that happens in the civil service, yes. with occasionally disastrous consequences. Yeah, yeah,
1: no, it seems a real problem.
0: Over here, and then the gentleman. Yeah, um, I know you haven't really touched upon it, but I was wondering what your uh, views are of the role of the City of London Corporation, given that it seems a bit of an anachronism in this day and age. So, I didn't. The. Uh, is the City of London Corporation an anachronism? But I think it probably. Yeah, and what are your views on? What are your I did
1: well. I I I kind of took a decision that the the sort of as it were that type of local government governance of the city was not going to be my subject, and above all, I wasn't going to deal with the with, with the guilds. I decided actually because that's a whole other thing. Um, if I'd been writing about the medieval city, obviously I would have. Um, I I think in the past I've actually had very little views one way or other about the corporation apart from being struck by how very efficient it is and in particular I've always been very grateful for the Guildhall Library that it's run very well and put resources into so from a working historian's point of view I've actually been rather pro pro the corporation Um, but there have been some interesting revelations recently and I did notice that, um, that the people up at St Paul's have made this a core demand before they're willing to go, but the corporation has to go. Well, the Lord Mayor has to go anyway, um, and so it's kind of come up the agenda. And to be honest, that you taken me by surprise because I hadn't, you know. But uh, I mean, all, all I would say is that in terms of the whole kind of propaganda thing going on around the city in the last 20 years, um, the PR side of it and emphasising. The uh, well, fighting for the city's position as an international financial center, uh, and also emphasizing the benefits to the, to, to the more wide, broader benefits that uh, the city's position brings. The corporation has been a much more conscious player in that than it ever was before. It never had much to do with that, actually, until until the 1990s really I think Um, so it it has become more of a player and the links in that sense are perhaps closer than I but I think historically the links were not that close between the kind of players I've talked about, the the Bank of England the banks uh, and the corporation but but things have perhaps changed in the last 15 years or so so it's, it's on the table as it were more than it used to be but I don't have any kind of hugely dramatic views in all honesty
0: the Herbert Commission that looked at London's government in the late 50s and reported in 1960, memorably said of the City of London Corporation, logic has its limits and the city <laughs> lies outside them. Yes. <laughs> is, no, nobody's ever said anything better in many ways. Now, um, there was a gentleman there, yeah. And then, lady.
1: Oh, Hi. Um, my question is about remuneration. and um, Essentially, is the problem that... Uh, there's a disparity between um, what they're being paid and um, everyone else in society, or is it that we're responsible, when they do make mistakes, to pay that? Well, it's a bit of both, I think, if I understand your, 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 your question. I mean, on the latter aspect, uh, there should, it seems to me, there should be, you, you know, you can't go on with one-way bets, basically, because that's inherently destabilizing, uh, and kind of immoral as well, I think. Um, uh, 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 so, you know, it should be much more, remuneration should be much more finely tuned to, uh, uh, to, well, to responsibility uh, and also to, um, to outcomes. And I was, and I know it's moving a little bit bonuses towards on deferred to basis, but not that far is my impression. I remember a year or two ago in the FT, Martin Wolf argued there should be a five year gap between actions and then seeing what are the results of those actions are before bonuses are paid for those actions. And that struck me as rather sensible. And on, your, on the former point, um, the disparity point between city remuneration and the remuneration of society at large, I just think whatever one feels about... You know, Different people have different views about equality of outcome, and some people are keener on equality of outcome than other people are. But even if even if one thinks as in some ways I think I do, that equality of opportunity is more important than equality of outcome, uh, there are limits to what I think one can reasonably put up with in a civilised society for inequality of outcome, and I think those limits have been surpassed. That's my feeling.
0: Okay, now we're going to finish in about four or five minutes. I want to take question there, question here. We'll take the two of them one after the other. Okay.
3: Thank you. If reforms you recommend are not undertaken and the current trend continues, what so do you think will from? be the future? So Sorry, of can the you start again? If reforms are not undertaken and the current trend continues, what do you think will be the future of the city and if possible in international context?
0: Would you like to repeat it? Yes, Sorry. Thank if you. things carry on as they are going yes. and nothing changes much, yes. what would you then think would be the future of the city in, and indeed in a broader context? Okay. Well, can, I the a, other, can I take the other one together? Yeah, sure, of course. We'll, lady A.
3: Yeah. Uh, have you touched upon the Bering
1: Brothers crisis or does it come within uh, this time period? Oh, bo- both the crises, both yes. Both the crises. Shall I just quickly, and mean, I can come, come yes. back. Yeah, Both. because in 1890... Uh, they got heavily involved in the Argentine and had to be rescued. That was 1890. Uh, and then in 1995, of course, Nick Leeson, the rogue trader and so on, uh, in, based in Singapore, uh, uh, and these entirely fictitious profits that he was producing, and that sunk bearings and Berings was not rescued, and it was bought by the Dutch Bank ING. For a princely sum of one pound, I think. Uh, uh, so those were the two bearings crises, 1890 and 1995. And I well, yeah, more than touched on. <laughs> yeah, no, I, can't, I, can't, I, can't, I mean they're both fascinating crises, um, and um, so I kind got yeah, i quite a lot on them actually. Yes. Yes. Uh, what will happen if things don't change? Well, the great unknown, I suppose, is what will, as it were, be the popular temper. And will it be back to business as usual or won't it? Uh, And I guess in practice that will to at least a degree depend upon uh, how things, how how this country uh, and perhaps the world at large fares economically over the next few years or beyond. Um, I think most people are probably fairly pessimistic about economic prospects. I, I don't think in their hearts many people expect good economic times to return in anything like the foreseeable future. Uh, So if nothing changes, it would seem to me psychologically plausible um, that discontent will continue and perhaps increase with the city. In that sense, it could be, and it's a rather dramatic analogy, but I think it has a core of truth to it, that the city is almost in danger of becoming, if 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 if, if if there is no reform, It's in danger of becoming rather like the kind of landed class in this country before the 1832 Reform Act, becoming, in effect, a rotten borough. Uh, And eventually, of course, reform was brought in, and famously the Duke of Wellington, no instinctive reformer, but he saw it was unavoidable, and he made the House of Lords accept that reform. Uh, And there are times when... um, uh, you know, even if, if people don't want reform, it is, the, it, is the be- it is the better long-term alternative. And I think we're either in that position or approaching that position uh, as far as the city's uh, concerned. So I, I, my guess is that unless, miraculously, the good, t- the good economic times return and we just return to business as usual, my, my guess is that discontent will increase. Um, and how that could play out politically... who who knows but the rhetoric is shifting Uh, Cameron himself was shifting his rhetoric last week and he's capable of course of shifting his rhetoric without necessarily meaning a change in policy Uh, I would accept that but nevertheless there's a sense that things are shifting the plates are shifting but you know uh, as a historian one can never be too one doesn't want to go too much on a limb about the present because um, one can make some very silly predictions
0: okay Um, I just really want to wind up uh, the event by thanking David. I mean, we've heard about an extraordinary history, an extraordinary historian's take on one of the most extraordinary institutions, uh, arguably in this or any country. I mean, the the gathering together in the City of London of this extraordinary array of institutions and exchanges and people doing business. And certainly I'd have... um, been interested to pursue a question that was just touched on towards the end there about why it is that even though there are all these modern means of trading that in theory don't involve people being in the same place, broadly and by and large, they still cluster, physical cluster still physically cluster in one place, which is an interesting. Uh, further issue for somebody to study I hope. Um, Clearly the city as of today remains important. There wouldn't be protests there if it were not important today Um, and it is still seen as the place to finance the companies that will replace the economy that's been lost by the recession and will be lost because of public sector job losses and again so where the money comes from if it's not the city to allow industry to function is still a very serious part of British public policy Um, and I think what David's made very clear is that the city has waxed and waned it's got more and less important and it's become more and less international from time to time and waxing and waning is an essential uh, element in this particular form of capitalist activity but nothing is forever and the economic crisis going on around us it seems to me is, as the question at the end there pointed out, uh, an admirable opportunity to stop and think even more about the City of London as a financial institution in context. And of course, to add to that, there is the fact that notwithstanding all that we're talking about today and the city the city has more international centres emerging as competitors than probably at any time in its history, in new countries with much, much bigger economies potentially than uh, America and New York, for example. So... All I'd say is thank you very much indeed, David, and I look forward to the fifth volume, uh, (laughs) seeing what happens and answering the questions about what happens if it is or isn't reformed from now on. So, look forward to hearing you and having you back to talk about the fifth volume of the four big ones in 2020. David (laughs) Princeton, thank you very much indeed.